You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Lord willing, we will be covering verses 28 through 32 here this morning. I do have somewhat of a lengthier introduction, and so I would ask you now, if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28, down through verse 32. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, I come to You now, cast upon Your mercy. Lord, such terrible and yet wonderful truths expressed to us in these words. The tendency of all our own hearts to sit in judgment over You. To seek to cover ourselves. To find some way, some way of escape apart from that which You've provided. Oh God, I pray that You give me much grace. Lord, that we would all have our attention fixed on You. Father, please, I do pray that You would protect us from error. Oh God, as always, please shut my mouth. If I were misspeaking and Lord grant boldness and authority, unction from on high to proclaim what you would have me to say. Lord, we all want to hear from you, the living God. To have our souls examined, convicted and encouraged and comforted. God, I pray that you would move mightily. And I ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Before I get into the introduction today, I, I'm not exactly sure why. I guess I've got an idea, but I have a greater sense of fear, trembling. Almost it's not well with me this morning, and I just feel like I should be honest about that, partly because there's going to be a significant focus today on pride and a call for humility. Imagine a man standing up in front of everybody in the spotlight saying, we're a prideful bunch. And the self-examination that the Lord's brought me through through these things. And I would hope that as I come into the pulpit here now this morning that I could say, you know, all of those things have been dealt with during the week as I studied and prepared. But in all honesty, I still sense in myself a desire to be seen and heard by you all, others. My prayer is that these scriptures we're looking at here today would have 
their intended effect on all of us, myself included. And so with that, let me begin working into setting the stage a little bit before we consider our verses. I believe if we were to take a detailed survey of every individual person on the planet today, and if we were to seek to diagnose what the single greatest issue of the heart of man is across every spectrum, I mean from every categorical, geographic, political, and ethnic divide that we would find, the one looming failure at the center of every person is pride. It's pride. As you mentioned this morning, why do we sin? It's pride. And this is not only true of people alive today, but this has been the constant reality in every person since the fall of man in Genesis 3. You can take this down but from Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see the sinful root. And it's not just seen in man and woman. The sinful root in the devil himself to oppose God at the beginning as well as the temptation in the garden was pride. You'll be like God. You'll decide what's right and wrong for yourself. You'll be the judge. You'll be the one. The arrogant notion that we have that we can do a better job of being God than God can. And I say that in our day and generation, pride is the greatest hindrance to genuine conversion. I know of no greater stumbling block to someone being saved than pride. That's what keeps people out of the kingdom of God more than anything is their own pride. But not only with the lost, pride is also the death nail to Christian progress. See if this isn't true in your own heart. That which hinders me from progressing and advancing in the kingdom of God and my knowledge of God and my own spiritual experience and awareness of Christ is pride. That is the thing, the one thing in us all that must be dealt with. You see, the greatest need of every person is that our own self-reliance would be utterly destroyed, that we would be truly humbled. You know, we've considered before that to repent is to say again or to agree with God, and we can't truly repent until we've seen ourselves as we truly are. And this requires a humbling. And you see, I must go on to say that pride is not unique to those who actively boast in their own greatness. That's what we often think. We think a prideful person, an arrogant person, is someone who's always talking about themselves. Well, that's true. But some of the most arrogant people on earth are those who are mildly and timidly avoiding the spotlight. They mask themselves in a pseudo, it kind of looks like meekness of a sort, but they do so in order to keep people from seeing their weakness and failures. If nobody sees my weakness and failures because I stay out of the spotlight, I can maintain kind of an internal delusion of grandeur. I can be the, what do they call it, the armchair quarterback. I can criticize others, but I'm not the one being examined. So I can pretend and imagine myself to be greater than I really am. But I'll go one step further. Some of the most prideful people you'll ever meet are those who struggle endlessly with depression. Depression. What do I mean by that? I, I don't for a second want to disregard the legitimate issues and heartache that people have in the world. And God surely comforts those who are downcast in soul. But what I mean is this. Much of the depression and the discouragement that exists today comes as a direct result of discontentment. 
People are dissatisfied with their lot in life. They believe they're entitled to something better and they're driven to a morbid kind of despair because the pride in them says, I deserve better than I'm getting right now. I shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening to me. And so they're frustrated and they're heartbroken by it. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. One of the chief characteristics of the world separated from God is pride. And we've got to deal with this because one of the most damning ideals which are celebrated in our society today, they're not only celebrated, but they're demanded, are self-confidence and self-esteem. Now, this is fascinating. Isn't it ironic that the most clinically depressed society in, in, in the history of the world is the one that has been force-fed a need for self-esteem and told from the youth age to follow your heart. Think better of yourselves. That's what we're told. And yet people are more depressed. Suicides are at a higher rate than they ever have been. I'm suggesting that our greatest problem is that we esteem ourselves too much, not too little. Those who have a right and appropriate understanding of themselves before God that are humbled before God and seeking after God. That is the thing we're needing. And so I ask as we move into our text, how is it that we're to reconcile these two things? On the one hand, we have this tendency towards pride. And then on the other, we have our own evident failure. We mentioned in the Sunday school this morning, how do you know that we still have sin? Just an honest self-evaluation. Now, don't misunderstand me. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of the sin that remains in us as Christians. And we don't just look inside ourselves and figure those things out without God moving in us. But honesty, common honesty says, I still have failures and faults. And if you don't see those things in yourself, and perhaps it's because your conscience has been utterly and completely seared. But how do you reconcile this? How do I keep my pride and then also deal with the evident failure that I have in my life. The glaring reality of my own sin. How can I escape the consequences of sin and still keep my pride intact? With those preliminary thoughts, I call your attention to verse 28 of John 18. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now the other Gospel writers give us some additional details at this point as far as what all's happened this night. For example, Jesus was also brought before Herod, and John doesn't really focus on that. John's purpose is to focus on Jesus before Annas, and then now on to Pilate. But something for us to be mindful of, I mean, we've been inching along through these verses, and it would be easy to forget this. This night began all the way back in chapter 13. Do you recall that? We saw from chapter 13 through 17, Jesus pouring Himself out in ministry to His own. Serving them, washing their feet, teaching them, instructing them. And then He goes from that focus on His disciples, even with them into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there He goes, and His soul is wrenched before God the Father as He seeks the Lord in prayer. And then He would go on to be arrested and he's been brought before various religious leaders and councils. And now here finally, they're dragging Jesus before Pilate. Here's the thing to be aware of in all of this. That Jesus 
has been utterly brought to the end of himself physically. And it's easy to forget this. We think the agony of the cross was the greatest physical burden that the Lord bore. And yet I'm suggesting part of our appreciation for Christ is realizing this, that he's been up through the night, constantly torn and burdened over the souls of his people and the suffering of the wrath of God he would come to endure. And now he is being paraded before these charlatans. This is no small thing. They led him now, finally, from Caiaphas onto the governor's headquarters. Now, this reference to the governor's headquarters simply meant this was the hall of judgment, the court of Roman judgment. And you will recall this was the time when Jerusalem was being occupied by the Roman Empire. And this Roman headquarters, this governor's headquarters, that this represents a hierarchical oversight that Rome had over the Jews. Now that's going to be relevant as we work through this interaction, but just keep that in mind. The next thing we see is that it was early morning. Now, this reiterates what I was just telling you, that this has been an agonizing night for Christ. You see, His perfect righteousness and His obedience to the Father ought to be magnified even more to you by the fact that as a man, Jesus is truly God, but He's subjected to all the frailties of a human being. And He's enduring this night. How many of you have ever gone a night without sleep? And then add on top of that the level of grief that the Lord was enduring. I'm going to step out there and say that none of us have ever endured the amount of grief Jesus was going through. But maybe you can relate a loved one up through the night with a loved one in the hospital or grieving through tears at the loss of someone you care about. And here the Lord is up through the night. And imagine going through that night of despair only to be met with a trial, an examination from wicked men who are unjustly condemning you. And yet remaining fixed, focused in the direction he had to go. See the picture of Christ given to us here. It's the early morning. How feeble our own senses get whenever we're tired. One thing that's suggested is that these religious, well, the Roman authorities that they often would meet very early in the morning, likely five or six o'clock at the very start of the day. Which again, through the night, all the way up until this point, Jesus has been enduring all these things. Well, now, the early morning, the Roman officials, it's suggested at least that they would meet early in the morning so they could get all their business handled out, out of the way so they could enjoy themselves throughout the afternoon with food and drink and women and other things. That's what they're doing. Let's get all the work done early. But it's also likely that these Jews have brought Jesus this early hour in order to expedite the process. In order to keep any who loved him, any in Jerusalem, you remember at one time the people were afraid, the Jews were afraid to speak out against Jesus because they feared the people. They knew the people loved Jesus, at least in some way they appreciated him, even as they had John the Baptist. And so they were silent. Well, here they rush this thing to trial quickly before anybody can come and stop it. Just demonstrating to us once again the injustice of this account. Well, then we go on the end of verse 28 and we'll camp out here for a bit. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is the point at which we begin to see how wicked, prideful men try to reconcile their pride and their own sin. Let me suggest to you today that every single person that's ever lived is looking for a Passover lamb. Every person. 
All of us are looking for some covering, some excuse, some way out from under our evident guilt. We're all looking to justify ourselves. Consider the hypocrisy, the irony of these Jews. They're making it abundantly clear to us in this text that the thing that they're trusting for their own justification was their own ability to cleanse themselves so that they would not be defiled, so they could eat the Passover. This is their priority, what they're going to do to remain clean before God. They refused to enter the governor's headquarters because under Jewish law, if they were to come into physical contact with a Gentile, they would be defiled. They would be prevented from eating the Passover. And they vainly imagined that they themselves were going to stay clean in order to be worthy of eating the Passover. Now consider the insanity of this kind of thinking. We've got to keep ourselves clean in order to eat the Passover, all the while delivering the true Passover up to death. Do you see the irony in this? They missed the forest for the trees. They're looking at these trees, this Passover. We've got to keep the Passover, our own strength, our own merits. We've got to be clean. And they're blind and oblivious to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. What they're essentially doing here is they've taken God's provision of a Passover and they've turned it into a work. It's as if they're oblivious to the fact that they need a Passover means that they couldn't clean themselves up. That's the whole point of a Passover is that you're already unclean. You need this lamb to come and cover you. That was the picture portrayed in that. I'm telling you, they're blinded by their own pride. And when the pride of men is wounded by conviction, the immediate response to having your pride wounded by conviction is that you imagine that you can cleanse yourself. Sure, you might admit, well, I'm imperfect. But the pride kicks in. Maybe you say, I'm imperfect. I, I have to admit, I have not done all things right. We're all sinners. But then they double down on themselves. Maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm going to keep myself clean from this point forward. I'm going to be committed to this temporal sign known as the Passover. Trying to work yourself to correct what is wrong. How common do you suppose this error is today? Let me be clear. If you die trusting anything you can do to cleanse yourself, you're going to face the judgment of God and be condemned. It is true indeed that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but there is nothing but condemnation to those not in Christ. If you're looking for anything except Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, you will be condemned. You're condemned already, the Scripture says. And how many people today have heard about Jesus? You've heard over and over again He died on the cross for your sins. But you're kind of like these blind Jews. They think that Jesus, not Jesus, they believe the Passover has made them a way to go and cleanse themselves. There's the Passover provision. I've got to go cleanse myself before I can receive it. How many people today, they hear about Jesus and their response is to say, well, I've got to do something. I've got to prepare myself. I've got to do something to be worthy of receiving Christ. They believe they've got to get their doctrine or their theology down first. They think that there's this gospel message that says to you, run as hard and as fast towards the finish line. And when you've got no strength left, Jesus will run the last leg of the race for you. That's not the gospel. Not in any sense of the term. The biblical gospel humbles a man. It tells us 
That we're not running in a race towards God, just reaching out there, trying to get close to that finish line and Jesus helps us to the end. The biblical gospel says that we're lying dead at the starting line. We haven't even begun the race. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes along, this Passover lamb grabs us, he throws us onto his shoulders, and then he runs the entire race with us on his back. And then he sets us down in glory. Life, true life. This Passover lamb, he must be the one you're trusting. So my question to you from the beginning is, are you going through religious motions today? All the while blind to the Passover lamb because of pride. Do you see Jesus? Do you see him today? Verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So we've seen these Jews in their attempt to look for a Passover, for an excuse, for a justification for themselves. Well, now we immediately see Pilate looking for his own type of Passover, don't we? Pilate's Passover was rooted in the pride of ignorance. He imagined that if he simply ignored Jesus and played dumb, that he would somehow be able to excuse himself. And isn't that the pattern that continues to the end? Finally, whenever he does deliver Jesus up to be crucified, he washes his hands. says, I'm not going to have the guilt of this man's blood on my hands. He's trying to excuse himself, trying to remain indifferent. He asks, what accusation do you bring against this man? Why do do I suggest that Pilate's playing dumb here? Well, he knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. He surely heard about him. All the reports going on. As a matter of fact, the Jews were really one of the reasons they wanted to put Jesus to death is they wanted to protect themselves from the Romans saying there's an uprising, a Messiah. We've got to put this to death. It's improbable that Pilate didn't know, especially when you remember this. It was a band of Roman soldiers who arrested Jesus. Now, who do you suppose commissioned those soldiers to go and arrest Jesus? Surely Pilate at least knew about it, if not himself, than one of his officers. And in this text, it seems that Pilate was ready and waiting for them whenever they came at this early morning hour. He comes outside. How many of you, if somebody shows up at five or six in the morning, that you're just going to come outside and say, well, what accusation do you have against this man? Starting the proceedings. How is that going to go over in your home? He's ready for them. Likely has word given to him already. They're coming. They're bringing Jesus. What accusation do you bring against this man? You see, Pilate tries to remove himself from accountability by putting it back on the Jews. Here's the point. Ignorance. The pseudo Passover of ignorance, whether pretended ignorance or genuine ignorance, will never atone for sin. If ignorance could atone for sin, if ignorance could be your Passover, then the best thing you could do for any other person is to hope and pray that they never hear of Jesus Christ. Hope and pray that they lie in ignorance all their life so that they'll be excused on the basis of ignorance. That's not the biblical record. Ignorance is not an excuse before God. As a matter of fact, the creation itself testifies to us that God is. And I've sinned against Him, Romans 1 says. I'm without excuse and I can't plead ignorance. My question is, how is it that you and I respond to hearing a message of Jesus Christ? This is very practical and it's practical for religious minded people. 
Do you intentionally keep your thoughts shallow and your understanding of Jesus veiled, hoping that your lack of understanding is somehow going to give you an excuse before God? People, they imagine that, well, I'm just really not going to study those deep things of Scripture. All I know is the simplicity of what I believe. And they have no interest in growing in their knowledge of God as if it's some sort of an excuse that's developed. Maintaining a position of indifference towards Jesus. Let me say this. There is no such thing as indifference toward Jesus. Jesus says if they're not for us, they're against us. There's this reality. If you're not for Christ, you are in fact against him. You will either love him or hate him. And if you stay in a place of indifference as Pilate is, not choosing one side or the other, that's as much a rejection of him as if you were the one driving the nails into his body. Ignorance, again, is an insufficient Passover. My labors of my hands can't cover my sin. Ignorance can't cover my sin. These are the Passovers that people look to. Verse 30, they answered him. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Once again, the pride of these Jews. It's almost as if they appear to be offended by what Pilate questions them with. How dare you require of us a specific charge against Jesus? Shouldn't our word, shouldn't us coming to you saying he's an evildoer be enough? Why do you need to hear the specifics? Why do you need to hear it this way? Almost as though they're not trustworthy in what they have to say. Well, one of the unique things about Jesus was his willingness to rebuke the religious leaders for their sin and hypocrisy. You see, most of the people in this day were so afraid of these religious leaders that they would not accuse them. But Jesus did. John the Baptist did. And they hated him for it. He exposed their unrighteousness. Consider what Jesus had to say. Why is it that they accused him of being an evildoer? but they don't actually give any details, any specifics about evil that he's done. They just say generally he's an evildoer. Why would they say that? Look for just a moment to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This is why they call Jesus an evildoer. Just read. You could read the entire. Excuse me, Matthew 23. Beginning in verse 1. You could read this entire section. We'll just read the first 15 verses and get the idea why they hated him so much. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Proclamation of woe against these religious authorities seeking to present themselves as righteous. I submit to you, if they had a just charge to bring against Jesus, they would have brought it right here whenever Pilate asks. They surely would have. The problem with Jesus was that He was threatening their Passover. Do you catch this? Jesus was calling them unclean, unworthy, unsaved. Woe to you means there's a sentence of condemnation upon you. There's woe to you, Pharisees. And that destroyed their confidence, their Passover, the thing that they were trusting would cover them. You know, you'll never see someone fight as hard or hate you as much as when you threaten their golden calf. If you dare suggest to a person that the thing which they're trusting to save them is insufficient, they are going to hate you with a whole hatred. They will not stop until you're dead and gone. If you threaten or challenge the thing that they are trusting in, that's not Christ. They answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Again, we see once again, Pilate seeking to excuse himself from the situation. And he demonstrates for us another type of Passover, a modern Passover known as moral relativism. So you've got ignorance the first time. Now you've got a moral relativism. Why do I say that? Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. It's as though Pilate is saying, deal with Jesus according to your own truth, your own law, as though there were not an objective standard for what is good and what is evil. The scripture says that those who are in authority over us, even wicked rulers such as Pilate here, that they're supposed to uphold justice. They're supposed to uphold the truth. They don't bear the sword in vain. And here we find Pilate shirking his responsibility before God and condemning an innocent, righteous man. And the way he does it is by trying to excuse himself from his obligation by appealing to moral relativism. What is truth? That's what he's going on to say to Jesus. That's the quintessential expression of relativism. What is truth anyway? How can we know what truth is? We can't really know. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Well, that's not how the truth works. And how many countless people today expect to have their sin passed over by demanding the truth is relevant? Do you honestly expect that the God of the universe is going to pass over sin because men happen to differ on their opinions? Again, relativism is an insufficient Passover. The second part of verse 31 says the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The final Passover that we see depicted in these Jews is that of silencing conviction through manipulation and blame shifting. Do you see this? Manipulation and blame shifting. They appeal to the governing principle which technically did prevent them from putting anyone to death in order to have the state do it for them. And that's not the last time that religious people have done that. You go and read recorded history. This method has been employed commonly. During the time, for example, of the Protestant Reformation and leading up to the Reformation and following it, the Roman Catholic Church would do this often. 
Or they would condemn someone to death, but they wouldn't actually carry out the sentence. They would get the, the monarchy to do it. The state to do it. We're going to have the state do this for us. We're going to rid ourselves so you can't say that we killed them because technically we didn't. It's trying to excuse yourself on a technicality and shift the blame to someone else. This attempt to cleanse yourself through the Passover of manipulation and blame shifting persists today as well. Although not quite so grotesque as execution and murder. Many unbelievers and I fear Christians alike are prepared to cover their unwillingness to uphold the Scriptures by appealing to unjust laws. And if this is you, repent. And if this is not you, then be encouraged by the grace of God in your life. But there are those who silence conviction by imagining that they're excused according to what other people have deemed to be acceptable in society. Is this not true? Have we not seen this over the last few years? How common is this expression? To pretend that you're submitting to the laws of a superior when in fact you're doing what they say because it affords you comfort or an excuse to do what you want to do anyway. Another insufficient Passover. And I say this because the way in which this is demonstrated here with these Jews, their rank hypocrisy is that Jesus, they said, oh, we don't have it's not lawful for us to kill anybody. Jesus is crucified. They don't seem to bat an eye before stoning Stephen, do they? And countless other martyrs after that. You see what's demonstrated in that? Almost as though they've completely forgotten that it's unlawful to put anyone to death. But at the time, here with Jesus before Pilate, it made for a useful excuse so long as it fit their own agenda. All of these attempts to maintain a Passover, a covering for our sin, to uphold their excuses and justifications... What was it all ultimately about? Why didn't they just stone Jesus and be done? They could have done that. Why not? Why all of this providentially unfolding in the way that it is? Why the formality and the trials before Rome? Verse 32 says, This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death He was going to die. If the Jews had not gotten Rome to execute Jesus, if they had executed Him themselves, they wouldn't have crucified Him. That wasn't a Jewish practice to crucify their criminals. It was through stoning. Jesus would have been stoned if not delivered over to the Roman authorities. So someone may ask, why is it so important that Jesus is crucified? Why did Jesus have to die in that way and not another way? Could we still be saved if Jesus had been stoned to death instead of crucified in the way that He was? Well, let me tell you, if God had purposed it that way from the beginning, then sure, that would have been fine. But that's not the way He purposed it. So it had to be through the way of the cross. It had to be this way through the Romans. And there are two primary reasons why that is. The first reason. This is the first reason that Jesus had to die on the cross. Is that His Word had to be fulfilled. Both the Old Testament prophecies clearly indicated the Messiah would be crucified and Jesus' own words had declared the same. Just briefly consider back from John chapter 3. You can take this down or turn there with me for a moment. Verses 13 through 15. Jesus, there with Nicodemus, says this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him 
may have eternal life. Here's the first reason. Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up in fulfillment of the scriptures. That shadow that was seen in that bronze serpent in Moses' day. Jesus come to bear the guilt of his people on a cross, on a standard, lifted up before the people, placarded before the world. Jesus. That's the first reason. And then Jesus reiterates this for us in John chapter 12, verse 32, when he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's a reference to the literal way in which he would die. And this had to be fulfilled. Jesus, the righteous one, would not lie. He would fulfill God's promises throughout the Old Testament in the way he would die. Go and read the prophets and see how they detail how there's this issue concerning his bones not even being broken. You read the details. It's describing crucifixion before it was even invented. Fulfillment of prophecy. Second reason. The second reason why it is absolutely necessary that Jesus be crucified has to do with the nature of what he came to accomplish as our substitute. He had to be crucified. Why? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's the way He redeems us from the curse. Jesus had to be crucified because He came To bear a curse for us. The death he died. He died as a substitute for a cursed and sinful people. The cursing of God was upon our heads. And he took that. And he did so by going to this tree. Now God forbid. That we should begin to look at the death of Christ. As merely a humble martyr furthering the cause. He did not die as an example. But accomplishing something. He died on the cross. Under the wrath of his father. And that's the very epicenter of God's purpose in saving and redeeming men. And so I ask again, which Passover are you looking to? Everyone who is not utterly seared in their conscience knows their guilt before God. And we all try to cover it. I've mentioned before, even the atheist does that by pretending that God doesn't exist. He thinks he's going to escape, but he's not. And neither are you. What? Passover, are you looking to? Jesus Christ is the only and sufficient Passover there is. There's no Passover through works. There's no covering myself by my good outweighing my bad. Insufficient. Failure. There's no Passover through ignorance. I can't say I didn't know any better. And you certainly have heard the message of Christ today. You can't say I did not know God. I did not know. I did not understand. Jesus has said to you, he died for sinners. It's said before you. You cannot say, I'm excused. I'm going to manipulate and blame somebody else and get this off of myself. There is no excuse. There is only one Passover. My question is, as I started with this emphasis on pride. Have you been humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you seen in his very cross dying as a curse under the wrath of God? That's what I deserve. That's where I should have been dying, suffering, misery, anguish and death. That should have been me. And he died. He did that for me. Are you humbled by the cross? Do you see in the cross the glorious links 
that Christ has gone to in order to save your soul? Is Jesus your Passover? Are you looking for something else to justify you before God? The hymn writer says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count the loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When I see the cross, there's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for another Passover. When I see the cross, were the whole realm of nature mine, it were a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine, it, it demands my soul and my life and my all. This is the message of Jesus as the Passover. And in closing, I want you to consider the context of the original Passover. We read it in the call to worship. Lest we assume that Israel was somehow entitled to Jesus, to God's deliverance through a Passover lamb. That Israel were somehow guiltless and that only Egypt deserved the plagues. Notice how absolutely necessary it was that the Israelites have the blood on their doorposts. It's easy to read that and think here's evil, oppressive Egypt. God's judging Egypt. Why did the Israelites need blood on their doorposts? God chose them. He set them apart. They were His people. But they weren't righteous. They hadn't merited it. There's no one on earth who does good and never sins, is there? Including those people that day. They deserve to die. Just like Egypt and just like you. Just like me. The message that humbles us to the ground is seeing there is one who covers me. There is one Passover. There is one who died as my substitute. There is one who bids me come and live. And my prayer is that the cry of your heart here today would be to look upon Christ and humbly say, pass over me. You know, he's pleased to answer that prayer. If you're looking to him, him alone, not justifying yourself any other way. Pass over me, Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no other way. And I assure you that He will. So with that, I'll ask you to bow with me and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, I thank You for Your mercy. Oh Lord, humble us. Remind us of Your grace in our lives. Teach us to look to You alone to forsake and let go of any other justification. We might seek you and know you. Father, I ask that you would bless the time that remains for us to sing and fellowship together. In Jesus name. Amen.